You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. You know, frankly, I think that MIT has always been uh, this uh, creative anarchy type culture where there are very few boundaries, there are very few borders. You get a lot of mixing between departments, between you know types of people, and that's one of the things I love most about M- MIT is this unstructured, creative, uh, intellectual anarchy which, uh, from which emerges uh, all of these amazing uh, technological artifacts and solutions and theories. And, um, and, and so that is part of why I love MIT so much. Data is everywhere. Nearly anything can be represented by a number. And in its simplest form, data is pure. A collection of measured information then when analyzed and processed, tells us a story backed by numerical truth. But data is really simple or pure. And thanks to platforms like advanced computing systems, social media, and millions of online consumer reviews, we have access to more data than any time in history. So how can we make sense of this never-ending wave? And how can we better understand data and use it to solve real-world problems? In this slice of MIT podcast, We'll hear from five MIT alumni. My name is Sinan Aral, and uh, I got my PhD at MIT, graduated in 2007. Denise Chang, I graduated in 2014. Tiffany Chu, class of 2010. I'm Jacqueline Martino. I got my PhD from MIT in 2006. I'm Matt Stempek, and I graduated in 2013. Whose work and research are tackling these questions in innovative ways? We'll hear how five-star ratings online are driven by social identity, how designers are mapping data to improve major U.S. cities, and how a Jeopardy-winning computer uses cognitive computing to discover new recipes, like Italian pumpkin cheesecake. These talks took place at the 2015 South by Southwest Interactive, an emerging technology festival in Austin, Texas, that attracted more than 30,000 attendees and featured more than 100 MIT alumni who spoke at the conference. In a few of these interviews, you'll notice a little bit of background noise, and that's just the nonstop organized chaos that is South by Southwest. Data is nothing without credibility. So how much trust can we put in data if we don't know where it came from, or the motives behind it, like a review on Etsy or a five-star rating on Uber? Who exactly do these reviews benefit? The consumer, the brand, or no one? Matt Stempek is the Director of Civic Technology for Microsoft and a graduate of the Media Lab Center for Civic Media, where he studied how technology is encoding subjective aspects of data into platforms in ways that might not be helpful. At South by Southwest, Matt presented with Denise Cheng, a peer economy expert whose research focuses on civic engagement. Matt and Denise discussed the idea of confidence in digital data, especially in peer-to-peer online marketplaces. So how much should we trust this information? And how accurate is it? And in some cases, what's the point of writing these reviews in the first place? They explain. Yeah, so on Yelp, if you look, there's uh, people review prisons. And they don't generally get well-reviewed. But it's an interesting kind of societal feedback loop, right? A prison doesn't have to say yes to get reviewed, right? Just like restaurants didn't have to agree to get reviewed. 
You also have like the opposite thing happening on Amazon, right? Where you have like the horse mask <laughs> as one of the most popular selling items, and then everybody who comments on it, it's actually a game. People comment on it because it's really funny, and they like create these really wild stories that they want to post. And there's actually the five star rating might be the most standard review system, but it's far from the most accurate. Denise says that it's dominated by social cues and motivated more by politeness than accuracy. A five-star rating is ultimately not objective. It seems objective because it's a number, you can aggregate, you can average things out. But at the end of the day, um, these are based on cultural biases in the world. Um, also that because some of these ratings are so blunt and unhelpful, they really become acts of courtesy. So when you get out of a Lyft or an Uber, you get a five-star rating because it's an act of courtesy. It's a way to ensure that that person's going to continue to have work from Lyft or Uber. So think of these flawed systems as a small part of a larger reputation. And if a subjective review doesn't seem helpful, the overall transaction history might be, like the number of times someone stays at an Airbnb listing. Matt and Denise explain. I, what I think is interesting is that we're using all these numbers and like yeah. five stars and, and data science really to encode what are subjective opinions, right? right? Like the cultural differences on Airbnb, it's subjective, right? Even though there's a lot of benefits from like quantifying these feelings, that we still recognize that these algorithms that quantify them were designed by biased human beings and right. we don't even know how they work. There's also the idea of like if the ratings themselves aren't useful, the transaction history that you see of people is really useful. So going back to peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces, um, you can see how many people stayed at that, that post's um, apartment, for example, right? And that host can see how many times you've stayed at other places. And so even if the ratings themselves aren't necessarily useful, you know enough that you know that that host is attached to his or her profile. So we know that data can be inexact and sometimes unreliable. But what happens when data is organized and thoughtful and programmed inside the world's smartest chef? I think what's happening is we're, we're getting to that wonderful space where it actually is a collaboration, where, you know, there's no way I can read, you know, even, even the best MIT or I don't think could read, you know, 23 million research articles and retain uh, the amount of information that would be necessary to identify patterns and propose an innovative solution, right? We do love our fire hose, but I think that's a, that's a pretty big chunk. When you have that's Jacqueline Martino, a designer in IBM's Watson Group. Watson, of course, is the computer best known for its success on Jeopardy, when it beat champions Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter in 2011. The computer visited MIT later that year, and for good measure, defeated a group of MIT Sloan students in a Jeopardy exhibition by a little more than $50,000. In 2015, Watson added a new title, Chef. The computer is a sort of personal chef that can develop new recipes based on the ingredients you'd like to use or exclude. Chef Watson uses a database of more than 10,000 recipes from Bon Appetit magazine and can sift through more than one quintillion ingredient combinations. The idea, Jacqueline says, is not to tell us what to eat or how to cook, but to use cognitive data to perhaps create a dish we might have never even considered. Right? So there, there are not answers. People who are using the Watson apps have a goal in mind. They have a hypothesis. They have an educated guess about where they might be able to go with their expertise, right? But there is no answer yet. 
for what it is they're they're working on. So right. we see this in the case of a recipe. You know, if I'm going to put in my chicken and my garlic, I wouldn't have thought of the strawberry and the mushroom. That answer wasn't knowable before. And now the Watson applications can help me push my understanding, push me into looking at patterns I couldn't have realized on my own and to see a context that I wouldn't have come up with. Jacqueline's work at IBM intersects art, design, and computation. She says this new field of cognitive computing, or cognitive cooking, is a collaboration between data and human inquiry. Information that in the past was too massive to consume can now be digested. Pun intended. I think it's the opportunity to be collaborative with your computing environment in a way that is something we haven't experienced before. The amount of data, right? So we have a vast quantitative space that we can help people explore. But we also have the qualitative benefits that we bring to the situation, that we bring to the inquiry as human beings. When you have so much information to consume, literally, and you have your hypotheses or your educated guess about how you could impact you know, a domain, an industry, find a solution, I think that's what we're talking about in the, the cognitive computing era. This ability to bring together what everybody does really well, what computation does really well, what data ingestion does really well, uh, the quantitative and the qualitative, and get to this place that heretofore hasn't existed. So Chef Watson shows us how a computer can learn from human expertise and extend what people can do on their own. So what if we took a similar approach to redesigning U.S. cities? Urban planners have been designing cities the same way for decades, using a spreadsheet, a pencil, and not much else. Tiffany Chu is rethinking urban planning by harnessing the mass of open transit data made available by nearly all large U.S. cities and moving away from outdated city building tools. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many cities are being planned uh, with paper, pens, and Excel spreadsheets. Um, when you're planning a new bus route, for example, yeah. what you do today um, oftentimes is you take a paper map, um, sketch out routes with markers, and pens and then take that into Google Earth to get the distance measurements, mm -hmm. then you take that into a huge Excel spreadsheet to do all your cost analysis, then you take it into another tool like a yeah. GIS tool to do your demographics analysis. And this process is so long and so laborious that if you were to want to experiment or try out a new tweak mm -hmm. in the bus route, if you want to say what would happen if it went down this street and served this community what would be the implications. Yeah. It would take hours to figure that out because you have to start from, you have to start from step one. Chu is a former fellow at the San Francisco nonprofit Code for America. In 2014, as part of a Code for America fellowship, she spent a year working with city officials in Charlotte, North Carolina, helping the city launch their open data policy and initiatives. And while at Code for America, she and a team of fellows used San Francisco's open transit data to reimagine the city's transit system. We thought it would be really fun to draw lines on a map and suggest new bus routes to the city of San Francisco. We released it quietly online uh, about June of last year, and um, the next day our server went down because so many transit planners came out of the woodwork 
all over the world and started making maps in their own city. Yeah. And it was so overwhelming and incredible for us to see that we had tapped into this niche community yep. of planners who needed better tools. That project bore Remix, a city planning tool that uses open data to help redesign transit networks. Since its launch, more than 80,000 new bus routes have been proposed by using the tool. Remix is now used by city planning agencies in the U.S. and worldwide. Basically, it's a mapping tool for planners to plan better bus routes, and it's also a communication tool cool. to show the public and explain why certain planning decisions need to be made within very real constraints. Because every city has different needs, we yeah. adapt to them, and one of the ways that we do it is through open data. Yep. So every city, most cities have their transit data in the same format, which is, and once we have that, you can, we can visualize their network in all different ways, and the next step is more than just planning. We, the next step is to really operate those buses in a more optimized way and get them out on the roads and serving people. Great. Cool. Sinan Aral is a professor of management at MIT Sloan and chief scientist at Human, a company whose app combines data from phone and social media to predict your most important contacts and who you're most likely to connect with at a given time. Or as they put it, to use data to conceptualize human relationships in context. He's also the voice you heard at the beginning of this podcast. Sinan has worked with companies like Facebook, Yahoo, The New York Times, and Nike to help make sense of big data these companies control and to design a better user experience for customers. He explains his role. At these companies, my role as chief scientist is to um, build and run the data science group. Uh, and the mission of any data science group or the data science groups that I've run is to um, uh, derive insight from data, both data that is being produced by the platform that we are building, uh, the users of that platform as they use it, but also bringing in outside data to drive uh, insights in the company um, to uh, open that data back up to users so that it can be useful to them as sort of um, a quantified self uh, service to the user. Sinan says that the idea of merging data with design to help solve real problems is still a relatively new concept. Yeah, so I think that that's uh, fairly recent yeah. in the sense that today data scientists are sort of rock stars, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, a few years ago that was not the case. Uh, it wasn't very cool right. to be a computer programmer 15 years ago, but today uh, it's the hottest thing uh, going. So um, that's fairly new, and I think that there is a lot of uh, you know, cultural mixing and uh, introductions that need to be made between the two camps. Um, and so, you know, I think very few people, there, there's a, a, a small number of people in the world that are highly creative and also highly technical. Um, but more and more, that marriage uh, needs to happen. But a massive amount of data needs to come with an even larger amount of responsibility. And any fears from the public are not groundless. Not only from a privacy aspect, but the idea that relying more and more on artificial intelligence to make decisions could stagnate the human mind. 
in terms of what we can expect and fear uh, or hope for from data and algorithmic thinking, I think that, yeah, I think that a lot of these fears are real and well-founded, and mm -hmm. we need to be very careful yeah. uh, about privacy rights. We need to be very careful about um, how automation might drive wage inequality. We have to be very careful about... Um, sort of losing a human touch in uh, in our society uh, as automation uh, and artificial intelligence takes greater and greater hold. But when harnessed responsibly and combined with human ingenuity, Sinan says data can map culture in a way that elevates creative thought and insight. It can create a collaborative environment that can help alleviate real-world problems. There's a a uh, ton of opportunity in the technology that's being created today. Um, there's sort of limitless uh, potential and possibilities to create new life-saving medicines, to create new business models and new processes, to reach greater and greater proportions of people in the world to um, address poverty, to address HIV, to address violence, and that's what we're working on. Um, and, and I think that more, the more people work on things like that with technology, the more we'll realize the good and, uh, and address some of the, the, the bad. So what's your take on the connection between data and design? And how can big data make society a better place? And what should we be concerned about? Tweet your thoughts to MIT alumni. That's at MIT underscore alumni. And if you want to hear more surprising, insightful, and quirky stories about MIT, Subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on iTunes to automatically receive next month's episode. You can rate the podcast and leave a review. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like about this episode, and let us know what type of stories you might want to hear in the future. Special thanks to all of the MIT alumni who took part in South by Southwest, especially Sanan Aral, Denise Cheng, Tiffany Chu, Jacqueline Martino, and Matt Stempek. For more stories about MIT at South by Southwest, visit the Slice of MIT blog at slice.mit.edu and search SXSW15. Thanks for listening. This is Andrew Whitaker from MIT Comparative Media Studies and Writing, where we reinvent the humanities to engage the day's big challenges. Enjoy what you hear in this episode? Check out all our work on data. We've got Denise Chang and the sharing economy, breakthroughs with sensor journalism, digital humanities, data-driven games. You can find all that and our podcast at cmsw.mit.edu slash data.